Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at the first letter that Christ is writing to his church through John. And it's a letter specifically asking for the... I honestly think this might be one of the most important sermons I ever preached regarding the long-term viability of Grace Clovis. Uh, I'm convinced there is something very important for all of us to hear in this letter to Ephesus. At some point in the next 30 minutes, all of us should feel targeted by this passage. You might think, he's talking to me right now. He's got me in his sights. I, I hope all of you feel like that at some point. And that's not in a, meant in a harsh way. But just to say that, that this text is, is meant for more than a mere handful of individuals. It's for all of us. And so I am praying that the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts through this passage that leaves us on our faces the way John reacted when he saw the Son of Man in the previous chapter. He had this appearance and fell down on his face as though dead. I pray that we are humbled by this letter. John has been commissioned by Jesus to write in a book, his revelation, which contains a letter to seven distinct churches in Asia Minor. And these churches are in a semi-circular route in Asia Minor, which probably followed a um, typical postal route. And so prior to this, John had seen the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands. And we said that the lampstands represent the churches. Well, he tells us that that the lampstands represent the churches. And he's standing in the midst of those churches. He's tending to them, upholding them, strengthening them, supporting them. So the appearance of Christ in his glorious splendor left John falling on his face as though dead. But Jesus placed his hand upon John and then spoke words of comfort and encouragement to him. So Jesus now dictates letters to the seven churches. Jesus is still speaking. He's brought comfort to him. He's brought assurance of, of victory in him. And now he's dictating the, the letters that, that John is to send. And so over the next seven weeks, we'll look at each letter individually. And they begin with a reference to the Son of Man that's informed by the vision of the previous chapter. They typically contain several commendations for the church and words of warning to repent and then promises for those who persevere. So although these letters are referring to very specific instances within specific churches or particular churches there in Asia Minor, their contents are meant to be read by all believers. We saw that back in verse 3 of chapter 1. Remember, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And we know that this whole revelation was given to John to be written down in a book right, as a whole, and then for that whole revelation to be delivered to these churches. And so while they're addressed individually here, the, the idea is that each church would hear the letter to the other churches as well, and that it was all a message for the church universal. Right? It was to go beyond those individual churches as well. So we can absolutely take this and apply it to ourselves today. The problems that they experienced are relevant to every church and they stand in contrast to the peace 
that will be enjoyed by the church in glory that we see at the end of Revelation. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this specific letter that was given to Ephesus at a time of, of need, a time of tribulation and trial in their own midst. And we know that, that they responded to this letter. They responded positively. Lord, may we do the same. In a way, to the words of commendation and exhortation in a way that brings you glory, in a way that builds up one another in the context of Grace Clovis. May you do a work by your spirit. Give us eyes to see this truth. Give us ears to hear it and soften our hearts that we might repent and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. This is God's holy word. So this letter comes from the Son of Man. We read there in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a reflection upon the vision John has already received and that those who, the recipients of this letter have also already read. So it comes from the Son of Man who is tending the lampstands. And his command is for John to write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And we talked about that being something like a guardian angel, an angel that's been designated to care for and oversee this church in Ephesus. Although the angel is addressed, the content of the letter is clearly speaking to the church. It's, it's not talking about the angel Right? It's talking about the church, but it's the message that it's given to the angel and through the angel to the church. So it's clearly meant for the members of the church, and the angel is simply the representative who receives the message on behalf of the church. So Ephesus was the church that John was pastoring. And although he has currently, as we saw, been exiled to Patmos, so he's some 50 miles away from the church at this point, and it's the Lord's Day, it's Sunday. He's reflecting upon this church probably when he receives this vision. Ephesus was an important city in Asia. 
with an estimated population of 200,000 citizens. It was really the, the primary city there in Asia Minor. Uh, it was the home of the... T- Artemis was the virgin huntress of Greek mythology, often depicted with a bow and arrow. And the temple of Artemis was a massive structure, 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, 65 feet tall. Surrounding the edge of the, of the temple was 127 different Roman columns standing you know, some 60 feet high, holding up the roof, this massive roof that's over, over the, the structure. And when Paul was establishing the church in Ephesus, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made his living by selling silver replicas of Artemis, he gathers this crowd of citizens, and they go into the theater, which is a, a separate structure, um, but seating some seventeen to 25,000 people would roughly seat half of Wrigley Field. Right? It's, a, it's also a massive structure. Um, and he's gathered thousands from the city into the theater where they're now shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they shout that for two hours. Paul wants to go in and speak to the crowd, but he's prevented from doing so out of fear that a riot would begin. And, and the only reason why a riot doesn't start is because um, the, the town warden comes in and, and, and calms everyone. Uh, but with the rise of emperor worship, there were portions of even smaller temples that were near the theater that were designated for the worship of Julius Caesar after his assassination. Um, And they would be in combination with the worship of Artemis. So you had temples just kind of throughout the city of Ephesus. In fact, later on, they would add a temple for Domitian and other emperors. So there's just places where people can go and worship the emperor or Artemis. Um, Artemis had associations with um, cult prostitution. So it is a place of idolatry and immorality. Uh, Ephesus was given the title Neocoros, which is temple warden by the Roman Senate. They only gave this um, to the, the primary city that, that kind of represented the pinnacle of emperor worship in the region. And they would fight, they would compete with Pergamum who was actually the first to receive that title because they're the first ones who built a temple for the emperor. And then, and then Ephesus became the temple warden for a while, and then Pergamum built another temple, and then they became the Neocoros. And so it was like they were in this competition for a while to receive that title of temple warden. Obviously, this is a, a place um, based upon even the numerous inscriptions you find today um, about the, with, throughout Asia Minor, the major cities had places of worship for Artemis and the emperor. But Ephesus was the pinnacle of that practice at this time. They were, they were the worst of the idolaters. So in, in that context, it might be surprising that the Ephesian church was commended for their reaction, right? Their, their faithfulness. That's the first thing we'll see here in verses 2 and 3 is a word of commendation. In your outline, if you're following along, it's a word of commendation, verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This sounds like an amazing church. They work hard. They suffer for Christ with patience. They have not grown weary in their task. They remain committed to the truth and their kingdom labors. They had defended the apostles' teachings against false teachers. They had been well-equipped by the leadership, which included Paul, Timothy, and then later John. And their doctrine was solid. They understood the apostles' teaching very well. They could defend it against false teachers. This was quite a praiseworthy um, attribute among the churches of their day. Christ is genuinely encouraging them at this point. They had guarded the truth in the face of tribulation. We know John's been exiled to Patmos, so it's, a, it's an example of the persecution they're under in Ephesus. And I think as a new church, it's possible we would be commended for many of the same things. I know we're still young. Maybe it's presumptuous to say this. But some of you have labored alongside my family from the time we were meeting in our home. In fact, Michael Jameson was with us. He can remember that initial Bible study in the summer of 2013 in in our living room. Shortly after that, Ray and Liz Sanchez taught our first Sunday school class in our garage. So they've been with us for a while. And many more of you then joined us when we began weekly worship services at the end of 2014. And more than half of you, I think, could still recall our first location in Old Town Clovis. You have patiently endured alongside of us, alongside us through several early challenges as a church. You haven't charged me with false teaching yet, which I'm thankful for. Uh, there's a palpable commitment to the truth here. It's very obvious, right, that we are committed to doctrinal clarity the truth. The conversations I overhear are filled with biblical and theological questions, reflections upon the sermon. And and many of you open up the word in private and with your families at home. You labor to know and apply the truth in the context of your daily lives. And so these are evidence of your eagerness to grow and to deepen in your understanding of God's word. So you should be commended for that. Be encouraged and remain steadfast and patient in your growth. Not only in your growth, but the growth of your family's faith and the growth of Christ's church. Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. I think that's a really good image to keep in mind as we think about persevering and enduring patiently. We're that snail. We're going to get there with the Lord's help. And although the church in Ephesus did have some wonderful qualities, they did also have a very significant problem which needed to be dealt with. And for that, Jesus gave them what follows is a word of condemnation. A word of condemnation in verses 4 and 5 specifically, but we'll look at verse 6 as well under this section. For But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, 
repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So as they had grown in their commitment in kingdom labor, it seems they had also grown cold and callous in their labors. Uh, the, the text is not clear whether their lack of love was directed to those they served, right? the community they served, or, or whether it was directed towards those they served alongside, or even toward the Lord himself. Right? Several commentators suggest that it's really just a general love that addresses all three kinds of love, love towards God and, and, and Christ and love towards others those inside and outside the church. That's certainly possible here. However, I, I think based on the, the thorough commendation that they just received of their faithfulness, that, that I don't think that's the primary thought in Jesus' mind here is that they have lost their love for him. They're very committed to him. It seems to me that this is a loss of love for others. So beginning with the first aspect is those outside, right? They were living in a very immoral culture as we've already talked about in Ephesus. Their love towards outsiders was probably beginning to weaken over time as they noticed a, a significant difference in lifestyle right? in, in, in what they saw as moral living and how to worship. Maybe they had isolated themselves. Maybe they'd become pessimistic and critical about the culture that they lived in. Ephesus was filled with idolatry and cult prostitution. Uh, prostitution. The temple of Artemis had become a, a sanctuary or a refuge for criminals. So that, of course, increased crime in the city. Ancient philosopher Heraclitus said, no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. This is not a Christian philosopher, but he's, he himself is recognizing the rampant immorality that Ephesus was known for being one of their residents. So with the increase of lawlessness in the latter days, Jesus warned in Matthew 24, verse 12, that the love of many would grow cold. As lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. That's already evident here within a single generation of believers in Ephesus. They're seeing that play out. But there's another aspect of love here that I think... Jesus has in mind. Writing to the same church some 30 years prior, Paul commended them with these words. He commended them for their love toward all the saints. Ephesians 1.15. And so if that is the kind of love that they were known for, the kind of love that Jesus here is calling them to return to, then it would make sense that what's happened here is that discord and division have begun to develop within the church since those early years of it being established. And so without love, every other quality is worthless, as Paul told the church in Corinth. And the remedy, though, is clear. Jesus says, remember, repent, and return. He gives them three commands. Remember from where you have fallen. Reflect back upon the love you had toward others when you first believed. Has your compassion for the lost begun to wane? 
Remember your love for other believers. I think this is a critical component of your growth in Christ, and it's easy to take for granted. Jesus is telling the Ephesians to remember their love toward all the saints. Remember these things so that you might long for them again. And repent of your loveless activity for the kingdom. Do you have a true sense of your sin? And do you understand the mercy of God that's offered in Christ? Do you grieve over your sin? Do you hate your sin? How are you actively turning away from that sin and turning to Christ? That is how we define repentance. It involves a turning away and a returning, right? A turning to God. Return to the works that you did at first. Take action. Make every effort to change the current course that you're on. Walk in obedience of Christ's command to love others. Repent and repeat the works that you did that were full of love. Right, the consequences for disobeying these commands would be to have their lampstand removed. He's not saying that they would lose their salvation, but he's saying the church will fold. The church will collapse if you continue in the state you're in. Their situation was their witness their lack of love was seriously jeopardizing their witness in the world. And that's the precise reason they exist, is to be a lampstand for the light of the gospel. So it's in jeopardy of being removed by their lack of love. Jesus would remove their lampstand if they continued in that state. Wilcox said, such a failure is only too possible It has to be confessed by all Christians who have cast themselves in the role of Mr. Valiant for Truth and forgotten that they are also expected to be Mr. Greatheart. References to Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We we associate ourselves with characters that are commendable, right? These are characters that are examples of us, for all of us, but we need to be both. We can't just pick one that we like and favor. We need to be able to endure patiently alongside other believers. Let us not fool ourselves into thinking that we can love God and then simply tolerate one another. The same patience and endurance that we have for kingdom labor we must also have for each other. And so if you've, a, if you've fallen into a, a rut of indifference or impatience with one another, the remedy is pretty clear. Remember, repent, and return to a former time right, where you enjoyed one another and served one another gladly because a church that has lost its love will sooner or later lose its light. At this point, Christ then transitions to another word of commendation. And it almost seems like we, you know, some, some people shift that and explain verse six earlier with verses two and three. 
as it fits there, right? While he's commending, but then he gives this word of condemnation and he returns back to it. It's like, he, he says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. And so having just expressed their lack of love, it stands in stark contrast to now commend them for hating. Isn't that part of their problem? They already do a good job of hating. Won't this only add to their confusion? Well, I think most scholars agree that the Nicolaitans were a heretical group that's associated with the teaching of Balaam and Jezebel, and we'll actually refer to them again later on in this same chapter in the letters to Pergamum and Thyatira. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on this. Um, In brief, they advocated for compromise with the pagan culture. They advocated to, to compromising in order to to be at peace with the culture and with the practice of pagan religion. And so maybe out of concern that the pendulum would swing too far in the opposite direction, Jesus clarifies that true love is not the absence of hate. A church that loves well will hate whatever disrupts that love. And so the work of the Nicolaitans was disrupting as well the love that he was calling them to have. And he commends them in that. Don't, don't hear me here. Don't think that you just need to simply open the doors wide for anyone and everyone and show love no matter what. Now, their passion for the truth was not the problem. They ought to remain passionate about defending the gospel against heretical teaching. The corruption of false teachers That was all very true. He doesn't want them to lose that fire. That's a good place to be. You just simply can't have that without love. Even even your defense of the gospel has to be done out of love for God and others. And so he concludes with a word of promise in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This will be a refrain we see repeated seven more times, or six more times. Every church receives this sentence. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the reward of heaven is granted to those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to persevere to the end. Around 97 AD, John was released from exile on Patmos to finish his final years, maybe even his last year. We don't know how long he lived, but it wasn't long after he was released to to finish his life and ministry there in Ephesus. So he returned. The early church father, Jerome, says that John got to the point where he could no longer walk and so during that time, members of the church would gather, would carry him to the church and they'd sit him down and, and, and he would exhort them with these words, little children love one another. You just repeat that to them every time they gathered, little children love one another. Ignatius, who was the, the bishop of Antioch, writing to the Ephesian church about five years later, so early in the second century, first year of the second century, he commended 
the Ephesians for their impeccable knowledge of the gospel. That's the same thing that Jesus is commending them here in this letter. And so we see that that is maintained now six, seven years later. They're still commended for that. But he also adds that they, that they had uh, a noted unity and a love. They were noted for their unity and love for one another. So half a century after they were established, they remain impenetrable by false teaching and now they're recovering that love that they had lost. It's a remarkable testimony of their swift response to this letter. They really didn't waste any time turning things around. And appropriately enough, the third general council took place in Ephesus in 431 AD. Now close to 500 years after their existence. And there in Ephesus, they condemned the false teaching of Nestorianism, which taught that Christ was two separate persons, a divine and a human person. They condemned it there in Ephesus, appropriately enough. So eventually, the city was separated from the sea due to progressive silting in the area, and everything in that city had been abandoned. There still remains from that city, but, but um, at some point, uh, it had, the city had to be abandoned. In fact, there still remains of the 5th century church where the general council took place that you can see to this day. So what will be said of this church 500 years from now? Not necessarily this building. But what will be said of Grace Clovis? A church that has lost its love will sooner or later lose its light. John 3.16 teaches us out of God's love for the world, he gave his son. And then in 1 John 3.16 John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Out of love for us, Jesus died. And now he calls us to die to ourselves and live for others. It's a privilege to do so. The same Christ who lit the lamp of grace, Clovis, the same Christ who revealed himself to you by his spirit and gave you eyes to see and ears to hear the truth and to respond to the gospel in obedience with faith and repentance, that same Christ can remove the lampstand of this church. If we do not heed his warnings to repent. So if we lack the humility that's required to hear our faults and to repent of them, then we should have no expectation of persevering. But if God has given you ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, then you will repent. You will respond like his children. And you will learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And after you have conquered, you will be received into paradise. And so let us look forward to that with great hope and persevere until that day. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
for your word. We thank you for this both commending letter and warning from our Lord and Savior. It is not to be taken lightly. Lord, we want to receive this word in the way that it was given, with the intent that it was given, that we would respond with softened hearts. Lord, may we first of all make sure that we are right with you. That we would be resting in Christ, our Savior. That we would recognize he is in our midst, tending to the lampstand. Tending to the lamp, making sure that the the lamp never runs out of oil. The oil of the Holy Spirit, that that the wick is being continually trimmed so that its light would shine bright and that it would endure with patience. Lord, help us to persevere through every trial and tribulation and that we would continue to give you glory and honor. Lord, may we not lose any fire for the truth. We never compromise. We do live in a very similar culture with much compromise taking place with people looking in every direction and not trusting in the only one who can save them. Lord, we we don't want to cower before the culture. We want to humbly rely upon Jesus Christ and be faithful to him. And so help us to declare that truth, but to never do so without love. Fill us with that reminder of the love we had at first. Fill us with the desire to repent and to repeat the actions, the works that we did at first. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.